Alright, so Banyana Banyana's date with destiny ending on a good note this morning. History has been made uh, for this national team. You know, they always say that if you want something done right, send the women to go and do it. Send Abafazi to go and do it. It happens um, while this country is marking August and Women's Month. I mean, the women of this nation are just flying the flag up high. A big congratulations to Banyana Banyana. I know I'm sounding a lot less relieved right? I was stressed when we started the show uh, at nine o'clock about two hours ago. So certainly my mood has changed. It has improved as a result of this, um, as a result of this result. So let's get into our final conversations of the day. Please do uh, send through your voice notes on Banyana Banyana as we continue with the show. I'll make time just before we end off this hour to play some of those voice notes. You can send them through on 0614104107. That's 0614104107. Even if you haven't been watching the game, I know you've been listening to me give you updates during uh, the, 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 the it, you know, throughout the show. So I'm more than happy to take some of those voice notes uh, at the end of our next conversation. So for now, we're going to turn our attention to our health and wellness feature. And today we're talking about the do's and don'ts of cosmetic treatments. There is so much that is available on the market and often very difficult to decide what is right, what is wrong, where are we being made false promises in terms of the products that we are buying. Uh, Dr. Riza Mia is an aesthetic expert and owner of Anti-Aging Art Medical Aesthetic and Holistic Wellness Center. Dr. Mia, good morning to you. Thanks for your time this morning. Good morning. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm well, thank you. And thank you for making time for us. So, you know, more often than not, when it comes to cosmetic treatments and products, we just look at what is being promised to us on the product label, what somebody else recommends to us as having worked for them. And that's pretty much how most people will decide what to use. What are the actual do's and don'ts that we need to be keeping in mind? What should be the process before we decide which products to use? So it's very important to take a look at your own individual needs and also what you can and can't use. So what I mean by that is, for example, we do a lot of hair stimulating treatments and there are 350 active ingredients that can make hair grow and have been proven to actually make hair grow. But it doesn't mean that it will work for everybody. So what we do is we do a DNA swab, we send it to a lab, and that lab will actually tell you which receptors you have to certain medications of those 350 active ingredients, and then products can actually be customized to each patient. So it's not that you can say, well, everybody's using this uh, caffeine shampoo and my my cousin's hair grew, so my hair should grow. And then, you know, you use the product, it doesn't work, simply because you don't have the receptors in your skin. And so that's one of the ways that we get around the problem of identifying what will or won't work for each individual patient. That is an exhaustive process, Dr. Mia, and a process that um, many of us will probably not have the opportunity to take up in in, in our lifetimes. Um, So what else can we be doing that perhaps might not be as exhaustive as that? So it's not as, as 
difficult or as expensive as people might think. Mm. But the truth is, when it comes to using products, we'll often speak to people and they'll say, well, I've been using this cream for three years and I'm still not seeing a change. And it's just, you know, within uh, two to three months, you should see a significant change. And if it doesn't really give you that, then it means you need to be going deeper, you need to be using alternative products. The thing with skincare products is that you can only get around a 4% penetration of the active ingredients into the skin. With uh, things that allow you deeper access, like a chemical peel, for example, you can increase that amount, but only by a few percentage points again. So most of the creams that we use are not uh, really going to get the whole job done, and that's why aesthetic medicine exists. That's why we can use injectables to get into the skin and to work in different layers of the skin, especially the living layer, what we call the dermis. This is where your blood vessels are. This is where the living collagen is. And that's the area where you can make the biggest difference in giving people results that they need. So uh, working exclusively from the outside is very unlikely to give people any significant change or significant results. Given the, 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 the fact that there is generally limited knowledge when it comes to injectables, like you're saying, but, um, you know, it, it is known that especially with modern medicine and modern aesthetics, uh, people are looking to see what kind of fillers or injections can they get either to have injected into their faces and different parts of, of their body um, to help them keep looking youthful. Um, and perhaps you can tell us about some of the options that, that are available on the market and the risks, more importantly, that, that come with these options. So most importantly, it's to be seen as a tool to help us get to the goals that we want. I find that, unfortunately, there are many people who move into aesthetics simply to, uh, with the goal of injecting as much filler as possible into somebody's face. And really, that doesn't give you a beautiful, healthy, youthful result. So what we have to do is to work in every different layer of the skin, to work with different treatments. So I'll give you some examples of what we use. It's things like botulinum toxin, dermal fillers, um, platelet-rich plasma, small little microfiller-type injections that treat the whole face. Then we'll work on the hair, we we'll work on the body. These treatments can all be applied to the skin of the body to treat things like stretch marks, acne scars, burn scars. You know, there's a lot that can happen to us that's beyond our control, but it doesn't mean we need to live with it forever. And so the biggest risk that people will face when they're getting aesthetic treatments done is the risk of having it done in a way that they produce uh, an, an undesirable appearance. So that means that the treatment hasn't given you the look that you want. That That is the level of safety that we've reached now with aesthetic medicine. But that said, there are risks which, if um, balanced, can be very small. And I'll tell you more about that, but basically what it means is you have to take a whole bunch of filler and try to fill it as fast as you can into someone's face. You'll be injecting under high pressure with high volumes, and if you're not careful about where you put that, you could inject it into arteries. You can cause obstructions, which can actually backtrack into the eye or into the brain or cause necrosis of the skin and these are some of the most serious side effects. So how we get around that and minimize that is to use small uh, injection volumes under low pressure, 
by uh, occluding the vessels with our fingers as we're injecting, and also to make sure that we uh, don't inject into the high-risk areas or the higher-risk areas. That said, it is important, this is why it's important to have your injectables done at a doctor who knows what they're doing, and not to get it done, uh, you know, there, there are backdoor beauticians even who have been administering uh, aesthetic treatments illegally. The thing is, the reason it's important for doctors to do this is because we know what to do with the side effects. And should we run into complications, we know how to handle them and how to deal with all of the side effects that can actually occur. So really the, the important lesson is to choose your doctor based on good feedback you've had from other people, looking at results that they've achieved. So social media is a good tool. It's a good tool for us to educate patients, but I would caution patients against using social media before and after as their sole means of choosing a doctor. You know, there's often also a perception that um, these kind of treatments are treatments that are available or that only women um, look for. But but that's not really the case. I think the face of aesthetics has, has changed quite a lot. And you do have uh, a lot of men that also seek out these treatments. When I started doing this in 2011, there wasn't about 10% of my patients who were men. And as time went by, that changed, shifted. We're now pretty close to 50-50, but I would say it's maybe a maximum of 10% more leaning towards women. And are men also looking for the same type of treatments? There are slightly different things that they're worried about. So the most common thing that I would work on for men, things like the frown lines, the deep under eye circles, acne scars, and lower face sagging. So those are the main things that men will come for. Apart from the obvious, two other things that men will come here for. The first is for hair restoration and prevention of hair loss. The second is for things like the P-shot, where we use platelet-rich plasma to inject it into the penis. What is it that we need to know about you know, this issue of uh, expectation, because you talked about the before and after pictures that uh, will often do the rounds on social media and people will look at those and they'll think, well, maybe this is what I need to do because I've seen this video of a before and an after picture. How do you as doctors manage this question of expectations? Because, you know, there are instances where, where things sort of go wrong and a patient that, you know, the outcome of a treatment is not what a patient had in mind. Can it be reversed and, and how is it reversed? Well, thankfully with aesthetic medical treatments, they're pretty much uh, semi-permanent to temporary. They're very unlikely to be permanent results. And so most of the time, if somebody wasn't happy with it, they would simply not do it again. But when it comes to things like fillers, we can dissolve them. The botulinum toxin, there are treatments that can speed up the resolution of it. But again, the way we get around people feeling like they've had an inappropriate treatment is to go slowly. We rather see them more often and work slowly. So let's say if we needed to fill someone's face, we wouldn't want to fill 
you know, two or three milliliters at once. We would use a half to one mil. We would combine it with other treatments, give it time to let the face settle and the body, and then work gradually and just maintain it with the patient's uh, flow. You know, we would like to see what happens. Because if I inject a milliliter filler into your face or your sister's face or your cousin's face, it'll respond slightly differently. And it's these differences that we use to make sure that we get an outcome that looks uh, very natural. Because, you know, if you had to look at the studies, when they get people to sit and look at tables and look at pictures and rate people as either attractive or unattractive, changing certain features by as little as one millimeter will shift them over the line either way. And that's why it's unnecessary and, and it's an important thing actually that patients don't look to completely change their face into somebody else. They must embrace who they are, embrace their face and their basic structure, and then we work with it and we give them a unique thing, a unique result that's still them. So they're not unrecognizable to their friends and family. It's just that now people look at them and they have an attraction towards their face. There's also a, a lot of products, um, Dr. Mia, that are available on the market that uh, people, you know, can take in, whether it's by the form of supplements, etc., that also promise, you know, youthfulness and etc., etc. Are there particular ingredients that um, some of these products need to contain for us to at least have a sense of whether they will be successful? Um, and whether they do, in fact, do what the product label says they do. So if you have to look in broad categories between pharmaceuticals and cosmetic products, you know, once there is a receptor that's identified in the skin and there's a molecule in the product that attaches to that receptor to give you a cellular change in your body, that has to be then registered as a medicine. So the fact that you can buy something off the shelf in a shop tells you that it can't do exactly what people are saying, especially when people start talking about products that alter your DNA uh, from the outside. You know, these are things they, they can't really do what they're saying. And the problem is that the cosmetics market is not very regulated. You can make claims um, that don't need to be substantiated with studies. And really people almost have to learn for themselves that you can't get the result that the marketing is telling you that you can get. There is a cosmetic effect, as in you'll be able to use it and feel better and look better. And with some of the active ingredients, we do use them uh, as a supplement to the aesthetic injectable treatments. So um, our patients here do use products, but very uh, much they understand that they cannot use the product alone because they can't really do what they're actually wanting them to do. So so that means that we should all have um, a healthy dose of, of skepticism when we're picking up products off the shelf. Yes, very much. Very much so. I mean, I've even seen uh, products where they've used before and after pictures, which were clearly taken from uh, the dermal filler company that we work with. Uh, there was a before and after picture of a woman who had had fillers done, and she looked really good. But I saw that same picture, and I recognized that face of that lady in another document that was from a, a cream company that was trying to sell a cream and claiming that that result had occurred because of the use of their cream, which is quite, I mean, that's basic fraud. But that's just an extreme example. But it's to give you an example of what happens in, in the world that we live in.
And harmful ingredients, um, Dr. Mi, I think that's also an important part of, of this conversation. What are the harmful ingredients that, that we need to be aware of that, you know, when we do see on, on product labels, we should be worried? There are certain elements and compounds and uh, treatments that we do advise patients to stay away from. Um, again, everybody's different and it's up to each individual patient and their doctor to manage their care. But there are some that I don't like. So steroids, steroid creams, for example, when they're misused, um, can thin your skin, can give you a lot of long-term side effects. But uh, other products like hydroquinone, that can give you some rebound pigmentation, which is called onchronosis. So people have used it to successfully treat pigmentation. But the problem is it's so difficult to use um, properly that patients are more likely to misuse it and then to end up with new pigmentation, which is very difficult for us to treat, even with the injectables. All right, we'll continue this conversation in a moment. And of course, if you've got uh, doctor questions for Dr. Riza Mir, I will take those on 086-000-2032 on the other side of the 1130 News Headlines. Get your health questions answered by experts. All right, we're talking about the do's and don'ts of cosmetic treatments for our health and wellness feature today. Dr. Riza Mia is an aesthetic expert and owner of Anti-Aging Art Medical Aesthetic and Holistic Wellness Center. Uh, Justine, you're calling us from Cape Town. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Good morning. No, that's fine. Okay. Um, first of all, Dr. City doesn't like steroids. I just want to say that using that insecticide niche shampoo I, my head fell out in clumps and um, the doctor gave me steroids and it was like a thousand ants over my head so I stopped it and um, the pastor prayed for me and my hair got replenished. But that's not what I want to talk about. It's when men bald at the top um, and you have hair implants, um, how does one know that the hair implants are going to, they take it from your neck or whatever, are going to take and not die? That's the question I want to know today. And, sure. and also, I don't know if the doctor does um, the stuff that you put into your face, you know, to plump it up. Because I, years ago, was waiting for an interview and I read this magazine, this beautiful model. She had it. Okay, it's about 40 years ago. She had it and um, put it in her face and her whole face um, on the one side collapsed. Um, what do you call it? Botox. Okay, good. Sure. I, I can answer those questions. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So the first thing, okay. um, when it comes to the hair transplantations, that's very much to do with the technique and the aftercare of looking after those transplanted hairs. So most of the time, um, the process of harvesting hair from the back of the scalp, if it's kept cool in between and moist, those little follicles won't die before they're transplanted into the scalp. Once they're transplanted into the scalp, it's important that people look after it don't expose it to the sun, keep it moist with a spray, um, you know, other things that they need to make sure that they never do is to smoke after that. Because what happens when you smoke is you cause vasoconstriction and the vasoconstriction will stop the new vessels that are busy um, working their way into those little follicles and those will close off and then the follicles can die. So um, it, it is different for each individual patient, but those are the, I guess, broad principles that will make sure that the follicles will last longer. What we do with them after they've been implanted as well is we see these patients and we do things like uh, platelet-rich plasma, 
micro injections with something called hair filler, and we also micro needle growth factors into the scalp to stimulate the blood flow to make sure that we give those uh, little new transplanted hairs the best chance of survival. When it comes to then, uh, sorry, the second question was about the uh, oh the filler. Yes, if the it was tops, many years yeah. ago. Oh, sorry, yes. Many years ago, if it was a filler, it would have probably been collagen and it wouldn't have been as useful or as predictable as the hyaluronic acid fillers that we use today. When it comes to botulinum toxin injections, very much if you inject them into the wrong muscles, if they get pushed over or, you know, let's say we do someone's frown and they accidentally rub their brows or their eyes because something irritates their eye within the first sort of four hours after injection, then these can lead to uh, botulinum toxin spreading onto the muscles that we don't want them to be injected into. From there, we do things like electrostimulation or we give them uh, treatments or eye drops to try to speed up that resolution. But the model that you're talking about, if it was a long-lasting effect, remember the toxins can only last three to six months. So if you've now gone and had um, a long-term effect long enough for it to end up in a magazine, then it may have been some type of surgical treatment that has gone a bit uh, wrong. Doctor, could I just um, think, apparently she was allergic to it, but the good part of the story is her husband didn't leave her. Okay. <laughs> That's always a good part of the story. Oh, Justine. Okay, Justine, let's leave it there for this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, all right, I'll Justine. On the radio. Thank sure, you. sure. No problem. Bye. Yeah. Look, I guess it, it speaks to the pressure um, that that women in particular feel uh, when it comes to how they look and the the appearance and of course everything that sort of flows uh, from that. Joanne, you are also in Cape Town. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Kathy. Morning, Doctor. Um, what I wanted to ask is, um, I'm not sure if you deal much with things like liposuction, but what is the um, what is the advisable delay between losing weight and then having liposuction to kind of sculpt, you know, the bits that that didn't work? Because I had a friend um, a couple of years ago who lost a, a lot of weight, and then a doctor you know, said, oh, we must sort this and this and this out. And I had actually advised her to, to wait a few months and let her body rearrange its own fat before going on for other procedures. But she'd already made the appointment. And, of course, six months later, she had put on all the weight. And it was all a loss. So what is a good delay time? Sure. So I think that there's a few questions there. If I can say... From the beginning, what we would want patients to do is to work on their body and their shape and their health holistically and from the beginning to focus on diet and exercise and weightlifting and to try and achieve as much as they can on their own. And however long that takes is how long that takes. But once they've reached the plateau and they feel like, I'm already gymming as much as I can, I'm eating properly, I don't binge on donuts, you know, and I still have stubborn fat in little areas on my body, then the first thing what we would do is actually use non-surgical methods of reducing that fat, which are divided into uh, cryolipolysis, which freezes fat, and injectable lipolysis. Now, these are treatments that can give you an, a visible change, but they're not as good as surgical liposuction. They don't come close to giving you the final result of an actual liposuction. And so when we feel like there's either too much 
or like it's taking too long, then we would refer a patient to a plastic surgeon to have liposuction done. But when it comes to, uh, you know, when you would do that, I would say, see how long it takes. Once you've stabilized, once your weight has reached the plateau and your shape yeah. has reached the plateau, that's when you can start making those decisions. But sometimes it's not liposuction that you need, but rather skin reduction, like a tummy tuck. Or if it's minor, we can still use injectables to tighten the skin. So I hope that answers the question somewhat. Yes, great. Thank you. Yeah, just I think just to warn people that there are some unscrupulous doctors that don't, you know, think of waiting. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, for 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 stabilization. Great. Thanks, doctor. All right, Joanne. Thanks. Thanks Thank for you. your call. Look, I, I think, doctor, the reality is that you know when it comes to cosmetics, we're dealing with a multi-billion rand industry, and you know. A lot of the times, I think perhaps people just don't know what the right questions to be asking are, uh, or even you know when it comes to the great credibility of of the practitioners that they they are working with. So, so, what advice would you have for us? I think just more generally, as we get ready to wrap this conversation up. I think the first thing is to learn as much as you can. It doesn't hurt to uh, look things up on the internet, but you know, a lot of what's on the internet is just something that somebody wrote on the internet. There is no filter between what you think and what you write on the internet. You know what I mean? So there needs to be some kind of um, some kind of net that stops the untrue facts or untrue opinions from getting onto the internet. And so if you use things like journal, like PubMed, that's where you can find out some uh, hard facts about treatments and about how you can go about having work done. But that is, uh, you know, can be quite technical. So the other way around it is like we spoke about before, the social media platforms are good to start learning about it, but it's good to look at many doctors' work and understand exactly what they're trying to teach people. We try to shy away from simply posting before and after. We want people to be educated about aesthetics and about how it works and why we do it. So the psychology behind aesthetic treatments and why we use them. Then speak to people. Ask your friends that you think look nice. Say to them, you know, do you do any treatments? Do you have a doctor? If you did have a doctor, who would you go to? Try to find out what the experience was like. And then do a test. You can go to a doctor and do a little bit of work. You know, let's say you were worried about four or five different muscles in your face. You could just start with one, see how that goes feel it out. The answer is to not be in a hurry. I think that if people go to any random doctor and say, well, do this for me, you know, if they just randomly pick a doctor and say, let's do my whole face, all the toxin, all the filler, do it all at once. I don't have time to come back. That is a recipe for um, an unnatural or unesthetically pleasing result. Going slowly, allowing it to integrate, not only will allow you to keep it a secret, as in people won't know what you've done, they'll simply think that you look better. But it will also then protect you from the negative side effects to an extent. All and right. that's my basic nutshell. All right. Dr. Riza Mia, let me thank you so much for uh, your time today and for your contribution to uh, that conversation. He is an aesthetic expert. We'll take a quick break and then we're back with more of the show.